Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thank you, Niall, for the introduction. I just want to check that you can hear me and all the technology is working. Is that people can hear me? Yep. I have a bit of a malign effect on technology. It usually stops working when I come into the vicinity, but so let, us, let me know if I become inaudible. It's great to be here. I was able to hear Joel's talk. I didn't hear James's, but I know James and I have to- heard him talk before, so I've got a pretty good idea about what he said. And I think my talk will lead on quite nicely from the earlier talks. In fact, I may skip through some of the slides slightly faster than I was intending to because I, I'm pretty sure you'll have got the essence of it already. I guess my focus, in a way, is going to be on, OK, so what do we do? And because I'm a clinician, I've worked in uh, mental health services for many years, I've got quite a good sense about what happens on the ground and about what we can perhaps start to do instead. So that's what I'm going to focus on before the break. We'll have a short break at about four. And then I will talk about the Power Threat Meaning Framework, which will build on the first part of the talk, which is a very ambitious attempt to outline a conceptual alternative to the medical model of distress. And we'll leave time for questions right at the end. I should perhaps warn you that I do suffer from quite a bad case of too many words on your slides disorder. So um, there's nothing I can do about it because it appears to be largely genetic in origin and we yet haven't yet come up with a pharmaceutical cure. I'm sure we will be one day, but in the meantime, bear with me. You do not have to read all the words on the slides. I will highlight to you the most relevant bits on each slide. So I think that your best approach to it, particularly the bit after the break, which is going to be quite dense, is to you know, see if you end up with a kind of flavour, a general flavour of the framework, a general flavour of what I'm talking. There will be references you can follow up if you want, but please don't set yourself the task of reading and understanding every single word and getting your head around every slide in detail. So I aim to be controversial. Well, actually, I don't aim to be controversial, but it appears that apparently I am controversial. Well, that's good. My aim, of course, is not to brainwash you, but to get you thinking. So my minimum hope for the next hour or so is that you go away at least for some new things to think about. Obviously, you don't have to agree with me. So I'd like to just get a tiny sense of who's in the audience. Don't feel you have to identify yourself if you'd rather not. But how many mental health professionals are there here? Loads. Okay. How many clinical psychologists, just out of interest? A few. Higher. Um, how many people, if you're happy to identify yourselves, who have used services? Or Great. But those two groups may overlap, of course. And other people, ordinary people, who would rather be doing this than pounding around the streets of London. Yeah, which is very sensible. Good. Sane people. Okay, good. So that gives me a sense of who's here. So this is the key question I want to look at today. This is an extract from my book on uh, diagnosis. The first nine lucky people who rush out to the reception desk in the break can buy a copy for uh, 
remarkably cheap price, a tenner, and anyone who doesn't, doesn't get there in time, please ask for a leaflet because you can get a sort of money off leaflet for it. I wrote this book because it seemed to me that people need to be informed about the debates about diagnosis. It's not an anti-diagnosis book as such. It's a book saying you have the right to have an informed choice about how to understand your difficulties. But because these are such controversial issues, it's really important to be clear that nobody, certainly not me, is denying that people who go to counselling or receive psychiatric services are in great distress. The distress is real, the experiences are, are real. Nobody is questioning that. So people may be tormented by hostile voices, have terrifying mood swings, but are they suffering from medical illnesses that need diagnosing? That is my question. It's the question I think that was raised by the two earlier speakers, implicitly at least as well. Or do we need completely different ways of understanding their distress which are not based on diagnosis? And if so, what might those be? So that's what the book looks like. And my hope is that it's an accessible summary of the often quite complex arguments about diagnosis. You don't need to be a mental health professional to read it. In fact, it's mainly aimed at people who end up in services or perhaps in therapy, either being diagnosed or being at risk of diagnosed, being diagnosed. So that's the aim, summarise the arguments, describe some of the alternatives, put you in touch with some resources. And of course, we live in a diagnostically based world. Few people can afford to give up their diagnosis entirely. It's needed at least, at the very least, for some practical purposes. But you may decide you do not wish to define yourselves and your problems in this way. I think that's a really, really important right. It's a right that's seldom offered. And indeed, it's an option that most people are unaware of because the diagnostic language, the diagnostic way of thinking has embedded itself so deeply in our culture, in our collective minds. You know, anyone on the street who might openly say, I know, don't know anything about mental health will talk about mental illness as though it's a thing. Show me the, any media article, even in our more enlightened papers, that doesn't unthinkingly use the language of medicine, symptom, patient, illness, depression, you know, all these anxiety disorders, all that stuff. I want to stand back from that and question all of that. If you're interested in following up more of these ideas, you have a flyer, I think, somewhere in front of you. This is a kind of travelling roadshow. We're about to do our 15th event, 15th, 16th and 17th. Uh, so this is exploring some of these ideas further along with um, some survivors from services. This is very much a joint production between professionals and survivors, exploring alternatives to diagnosis and exploring trauma-informed care. So do come along if you're able to. But, you know, these are complex questions. We seem as a society actually to be very bad at discussing this. If anyone starts to question diagnosis, then immediately you get, you're likely to get a reaction as though you're blaming someone. It seems as though, in a rather useful phrase, we have a kind of brain or blame understanding of distress. You know, if it's not something that went wrong in my brain, of course we have absolutely no evidence at all that it is, then you must be saying I'm inventing it or I'm to blame or I should pull myself together or it's someone's fault or I should go and be really cross with my mother for dropping him on the head when I was three or whatever. So actually I think we need more sophisticated, more sophisticated ways of understanding that fall between those two polarities because to be honest if I felt the alternative was brain or blame I would go for the brain one, who wouldn't? But we actually need alternatives that are kind of in between those two polarities. So I hope to suggest what some of those might be. Okay, did, did James show you some of these quotes? 
Uh, he may or may not have done. He certainly have shown you some similar ones. So this is kind of putting the context. I don't want to just repeat what James has said, but I will flash a few slides past you. So a lot of these debates came to a head, though they've been around for decades. Um, they've been around since the start of psychiatry as we know it. With the publication of DSM-5 in May 2013, you will know what DSM is, if you've heard James, the kind of so-called Bible of diagnoses. And what's particularly interesting about this is that these uh, controversies, which, as I say, have been around for decades, some of the most outspoken critics were the very people who draw up these manuals. So Dr. Alan Francis, the chair of the DSM-4 committee, and you know you're in trouble as a member of a DSM-5 committee when your chief critic is a member of the DSM-4 committee. DSM-5 will radically and recklessly expand the, expand the boundaries of psychiatry. There's no reason to believe that DSM-5 is safe or scientifically sound. Now, I get into an awful lot of trouble on Twitter when I say things like that, but he said it. He should know he drew up these categories. These are two other very senior, I mean, these are establishment psychiatrists. These are not mavericks or extremists or so-called anti-psychiatrists. NIMH is the world's largest funding body for mental health. Totally wrong, an absolute scientific nightmare. Patients deserve better. In an unusual moment of frankness, which I suspect he may regret, Dr. Alan Francis admitted there's no definition for mental disorder. I mean, you just can't define it. It's bullshit. So this is kind of extraordinary stuff. And... It really concerns me that so little of this filters down to professionals, let alone to service users or survivors. Because how many people do you know who were told at the point of being assured that they had, let's say, personality disorder or bipolar disorder or psychosis or depression or whatever, well, you could call this bipolar disorder or personality disorder, but you could also call it bullshit. The people who invented these labels have called it exactly that. I've yet to hear of an example. People have a right to know that there are serious concerns about the validity, the scientific validity of these labels. Okay, so this situation has read to these kind of headlines, which being a rather sad person of very narrow interests I like to collect. Um, so I've got lots of these, but anyway, so these again are headings that kind of reach the academic journals, but don't necessarily filter further down than that. Western psychiatry is in crisis. Psychiatry is in crisis, seems to have lost its way. Is psychiatry dying? Dr. Sammy Tamimi has already been quoted today as a psychiatrist himself. It's time to reach beyond diagnostic dependence. It's a good moment to point out that many of the main critics are psychiatrists, and this really, really isn't, as it's sometimes tiresomely represented, psychologists fighting psychiatrists. Yawn. You know, many psychiatrists are equally concerned and have bravely been among the loudest voices calling for change. Many psychologists are very unfortunately, in my view, wedded to diagnostic categories, including the people who set up IAPT, which we were hearing about earlier. So it's about ways of thinking, not professions. And along with this, a number of other planks that are often unquestioned of the medical model of distress have started crumbling. The emperor's clothes have been rapidly falling to the ground. Uh, the chemical imbalance was never a theory, was never a real theory, nor was it widely propounded by responsible practitioners in the field of psychiatry. That's a very senior American psychiatrist. How many people in this room have heard of a sort of idea that things like depression may are caused by a chemical imbalance? How extraordinary, because no one ever said that. Certainly psychiatrists didn't. This appears to be an outbreak, a collective mass delusional belief. 
And actually, of course, this is nonsense. People are routinely told this, and if not by psychiatrists, by GPs, by you know, media outlets, by kind of information leaflets. But there has been some absolutely spectacular backtracking on this. I mean, there's never been any evidence for this theory, which was heavily promoted by the pharmaceutical companies from the 1980s onwards. Never been any evidence for this theory. But the backtracking involves not just saying we never said it, but the idea that psychiatrists once told people that low serotonin was a cause of depression, that antidepressants corrected it, is now said to be a false narrative invented by anti-psychiatry activists. That's people like me, folks. How mean can you get? Okay, so you can see there's a very rapid crumbling of of the orthodox understandings, which, as I say, has yet to reach most people who are going to be touched by this, I would might say victims of this. We may come back to the drug question because this does not mean that psychiatric drugs have no uses, but it means that insofar as they help, they help in very different ways that, than the ones we've currently been led to believe in. So we're left with a kind of circular argument. Diagnoses sound like an explanation, but they're not. Why do this person hear voices because they have schizophrenia? How do you know they have schizophrenia because they hear voices? Why does this person feel so desperate because they have depression? How do you know they have depression? Because they feel so desperate. Why does this person have mood swings? Because they have bipolar disorder. How do you know they have bipolar disorder? Because they have mood swings, etc. Put in any psychiatric diagnosis. I mean, I assume you know there are exceptions like dementia and so on. But any psychiatric diagnosis and you will get the same circle. The thing that sounds like an explanation is simply a kind of a circular argument. But the trouble is it's not a neutral circular argument. It's not just that it isn't an explanation. It's that it's a pseudo-explanation that carries enormous power and has enormous consequences. And in what I would call legitimate branches of medicine, which psychiatry is not, then at least in theory, and in most cases, not every case, of course, you have an exit point. Why does this person have headaches? Because possibly they have a brain tumour or they have high blood pressure or whatever. How do you know? You can carry out some tests to confirm or disconfirm that. You actually cannot do that with any of the common psychiatric so-called disorders. The only proof that you have a certain type of so-called mental illness is that a psychiatrist says you have. And the only disproof that may be available to you is if you can get him or her to change his mind. You know, essentially it's an expression of someone's opinion. Okay, and you know, The bottom line is that the things we call mental illnesses are actually unusual forms of thinking, feeling and behaving, which may be distressing to the person themselves and to other or to other people. There may be a problem. Is there an illness? Okay, is there an illness that justifies calling this a branch of medicine with everything else that goes with it, which includes the main professions that are involved, doctors, nurses, the primary settings, hospitals, clinics, the language you use, symptom, patient, prognosis, treatment, all things that I try to avoid using because each time you use any of those terms, you're implicitly implying a whole model. You know, the main interventions are are largely drug centres, as you will know. So it's a false analogy and it's one that has massive consequences. So this is why to query diagnosis is the most controversial thing you can do. But actually, we're now in a limbo state. The chair of the DSM-5 committee has admitted this. We've been telling patients for several decades who are waiting for biomarkers, actual concrete evidence, the so-called genetic flaws, 
so-called chemical imbalances, so-called whatever the latest thing is, I think it's neural circuits. Well, what does that mean? Neural circuits are part of everything we do. You know, it's the, the, next, the next load of kind of, you know, if it's not this, is this is coming up. It's a kind of theory you can't disprove in a way because as soon as we find there's no evidence for this biological causal factor, we shift to another one. We're still waiting. And New Scientist editorial, almost everyone agrees the old system is no longer fit for purpose. Patients deserve better. Delivering something better is going to be a long, slow process. And so millions of dollars are being poured into developing alternatives. So people like Alan Francis are not giving up on the diagnostic enterprise. If you really press them, they will say, oh, well, we know diagnosis has some flaws, but it's the best we've got. Well, it isn't the best we've got. We have alternatives, and actually the alternatives they're trying to develop with an expected outcome in 10 to 20 years' time when who, we may exit from this limbo, who knows, I don't think we will, are based on the same principles. If you look on the website, it says we are starting for the assumption that mental disorders are brain disorders, begging all the questions. That is exactly what needs to be demonstrated. That shouldn't be our starting point. And in the meantime, the United Nations has been very outspoken and has talked about the myths we've been sold the lack of evidence for medications, the urgent need for a shift in approach towards more social approaches, mental health policies should address the power imbalance rather than the chemical imbalance. What a fabulous quote that I want to have put on a T-shirt one day. The power imbalance, not the chemical imbalance. Very consistent with what Joel was saying. And I want to acknowledge that people have a range of responses to receiving a diagnosis. Some people find it comforting. They find at least short-term relief from guilt and self-blame. Like I said, the brain or blame thing. If it seems like the only alternative is blame, I can't understand why people want to go for brain. But some people, quite a lot of people, experience this as profoundly damaging as they are forced to adopt very often a highly stigmatised identity, some people will say that this feels as bad as the things that brought me into services. So if at least some people are experiencing diag the diagnostic labelling process like this, we need to be very, very clear about, as professionals about the very damaging nature of the, you know, the words we use to people, the identities we impose on them. You know, we have a responsibility not to do harm. So I will also briefly mention there are particular consequences for minority ethnic groups and non-Western cultures. Diagnostic manuals emerge within white, largely white Western cultures, and they don't fit well even in, within those cultures, but we are engaged in something called the global mental health movement, which I think, you know, I wouldn't say it's all bad, but I think it's one of the bigger scandals of our age and will one day be seen as such. We used to export missionaries, now we're exporting our diagnostic model. And these models fit even less well in cultures which come from very different sets of cultural understandings, which very often have their own forms of healing, which, I mean, it's easy to say they'd like to be more effective than ours because ours are on the whole not helpful. So psychiatrists like Sue and Fernando have argued this is simply another form of colonialism. And it's a more sinister one, actually. It's one that's harder to identify because it's about infecting people's minds so that people actually think they want this Western scientific approach. So, don't need to read all these complicated language, but 
my professional body, the Division of Clinical Psychology, as some of you will know, in 2013, the very same week that DSM-5 came out, not at all coincidentally, issue this statement saying, actually, as a professional body, we are saying we need to move beyond the disease model. We need to move beyond this paradigm. So an important, significant uh, point. It was headlines in the Observer. That was in those distant, happy days when we didn't know about Brexit. Do you remember that? <laughs> we actually had time to think about other things. Um, anyway, uh, leave behind the nostalgia. This was a very, very important and significant statement, I think. And of course, it was controversial. Not all psychologists agree with it, but I think it's important that it exists. So what do we do instead, instead of diagnosis? Well, I'm going to look at briefly at two possible alternatives, and they're alternatives that have found some foothold within mental health services as they exist. Um, so this is a quote from an excellent book called Searching for a Rose Garden, which is unusual in that it's written entirely by survivors. And I love this quote by Beth Filson. In essence, the alternative diagnosis is listening to people's stories. Until we're able to use our own words to tell our own stories, the context we find ourselves in, in this case the psychiatric system, says our stories for us and usually gets it wrong. In the context of the medical model, the story we learn to say is that we are ill. We begin to see ourselves as ill. We tell stories of illness. Being able to tell your own story, not the illness story, sets a new social context. In part, healing happens in the restoring of our lives. The single most damaging effect, and depending on how far you want to push this argument, purpose of a applying a diagnosis is that it obscures people's stories. Everyone who comes to services has a story. As soon as we apply a diagnosis, we stop looking for that story. And you can construct stories in many, many ways. But just to give you a brief heads up about what's going on in services. A, one particular way of constructing a story is called, in the jargon term, psychological formulation. It's something I've written a lot about. If you want to find out more, if you put my name and formulation into Google, you'll find lots of articles and other stuff. A core skill for clinical psychologists and counselling psychologists. Many psychologists, like myself, have never used, never thought in terms of diagnosis at all. Never in my entire career, and I've worked very much at the sharp end of services throughout my whole career, diagnosis is absolutely not necessary. And increasingly, and I think there are various reasons for this, some good, some less good, formulation is becoming a kind of acceptable either addition or alternative, depending on your position. It's a tricky political question. Is formulation an alternative to a diagnosis or, as is sometimes claimed, less radically an addition? But in any case, it is around in services. So I'm going to show you an invented example. So suppose we had someone like this invented example that I've called Karen, who is not untypical of some people who end up in services. If you have a quick scan of that. So someone like Karen is actually very likely to end up with a diagnosis of what? Very good, very good. Borderline personality disorder, of course. What else could have caused this? So she's quite likely to end up with that diagnosis. Um, so 
uh, borderline personality disorder, a common diagnosis for someone with this kind of pattern of experiences, um, particularly for anyone who self-harms. Anyway, let's say that someone like Karen is fortunate enough to come across a mental health professional, possibly a psychologist, who actually is able to take the time to sit down with her over a period of weeks or months and establish trust, and together they co-construct a story which seems to make sense to both of them and at some point the professional decides to write it down and check it back with Karen to see if this makes sense to her and if it does they will have an agreed shared basis on how they're going to move forward. So again I've invented this I won't read it out to you but can, can everybody read that? No, shall I read it out then? Okay, your early childhood experiences and relationships left you with little sense of security and self-worth. Your father's departure felt like a major rejection and you saw yourself as unlovable and worthless. When your stepfather began to abuse you, his threats stopped you from telling anyone. Instead, you carried hidden feelings of guilt, anger and shame inside. Cutting yourself relieved these feelings when you couldn't express them in any other way. Desperate to find love and security, you often ended up with men who treated you badly. This confirmed your feelings of rejection and failure. You showed great courage in leaving your husband. You very much want to give your daughter a better start in life. However, when she reached the age that your own abuse started, you could no longer push your feelings away. Overwhelmed with distress, with no one to support you, turned to drinking and drug use. Despite everything you've been through, you want to overcome your difficulties and use your strength and determination to build a different life for yourself and your daughter. So we'll wait for the question times for you to tell me what a rubbish formulation that is. And I'm not saying that's perfect, but I'm using it to illustrate, in principle, what a formulation might look like. And in essence, what I want to say to you is that it integrates two equally important forms of evidence. That is, the clinician brings their knowledge of theory. There's a lot of implicit theory there, although not dressed up in jargon language. It's ordinary language and their clinical experience and equally importantly, the service user brings their own story of their life and how they survived and what sense they made of it. So a formulation is important sounding word hypothesis, informal sounding best guess. And of course, it's always in a state of flux. It's open to revision. It will evolve as the relationship goes on. And we haven't got time to think at the moment about what the differences are that you notice, but I hope people might say that the intention at least, and of course formulations can be done insensitively as well as sensitively, is to give a sense of feeling understood and listened to and a sense of hope and a sense that actually this isn't so awful what I've done, it makes sense. Perhaps other people might well have felt the same, reacted in the same way. And I'm not just a bundle of problems, I have strengths and there's a reason to suppose that with support I can move forward. And I hope it also makes sense if I pose you the question, if you have a formulation, do you have to say or add, of course it's also because you've got a borderline personality disorder. Obviously you don't, obviously to my point of view. You don't need a second competing, contradictory and therefore redundant explanation. This is the explanation. So my practice has always been trauma-informed like many other services like many other psychologists. So to my mind, formulation offers a way out of the brain or blame trap because the overall message of any formulation is something in between those two polarities. You have survived very difficult circumstances in the best way you could. These strategies are no longer needed or useful with the right kind of support you can learn to leave them behind.
Okay, so I'm racing on and we will stop for a break shortly. So we've talked a little bit about formulation and about stories in general as an alternative to diagnosis that actually works, and I can tell you it works. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the alternative to the medical model of distress, and in essence that's saying what are these stories typically about. So trauma-informed practice, I guess this is familiar to some of you. How many people are familiar with that term, trauma-informed practice? Very good, well-informed audience. Uh, it's interesting because this is a relatively recent arrival on the, on the scene. So I'm going to do the world's briefest, briefest overview of trauma-informed practice. Emerged in the States, has spread across um, many other countries, finding its way into policy and practice in the UK. Very strongly recommended books, should you want to start reading about it. Google trauma-informed practice, you'll find masses and masses and masses of stuff. So trauma-informed practice is essentially about recognising the causal role of trauma and adversity in all its guises across all human welfare systems. And when I first came across this body of work, which wasn't until about 2008 or 9, I think, I had that unusual experience of, I kind of knew this, and yet I'd never put it together in this way, and this is really important stuff. So... The trauma-informed approach um, gains a lot of its credibility from the research on which it's based, the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies, which were carried out in the 90s by Kaiser Permanente, which is an American insurance firm and service provider. And essentially what they did was to take over 17,000 people who had an insurance plan, so not particularly mental healthy people, and to ask them very simply whether they had suffered from any of these 10 types of childhood adversity. Subsequent research has added to those. You can see there could be many other types, like bullying, for example, and obviously there can be adult adversities, but this was the initial paper. So you can very simply get an ACE score of naught, none of these things happened to me, to 10, all of them happened to me, or anything in between. So, thinking more broadly, what do we think by trauma? I tend to prefer the word adversity because I think the word trauma is almost in danger of becoming a bit of a cliché, and we tend to think of it as particular nasty, horrible events, which it may be, at the expense of thinking at more longer-term corrosive influences of, let's say, poverty and inequality and discrimination, and in fact, a lot of the things that Joel was talking about, talking about earlier. But at the very least, we mean this neglect, physical abuse, psychological abuse, domestic violence, sexual abuse in all its guises, as well as specific events. So what we find is that there is a strong graded relationship between high ACE scores and higher rates of mental and physical ill health, behavioural and social problems. Higher ACE scores predict greater incidence of fetal death, injury and death as a child, depression, suicide, psychosis, PTSD, drug use, criminal behaviour, heart disease, cancer, STDs, lung disease, liver disease, smoking, obesity, diabetes, poor educational work performance, homelessness, domestic violence, prostitution, unemployment and early death. So that's a pretty catastrophic list, isn't it? And one of the things that, well, it implies at least two very important things. One is we need to be working much more across welfare systems and indeed educational systems and all the rest of it because all these problems that appear in different forms may have common roots, too, that we need to get in there early. 
and we partly need to get in there early because of the evidence that ACEs act in a cumulative way. The more ACEs, on average, the worse the outcome. Uh, but also in a synergistic way, so what that means is the impact of four ACEs is, on average, greater than the impact of one plus one plus one plus one. There's a kind of multiplying effect. So what this tends to imply is that people can get a kind of hamster wheel of accumulating more and more adversities, which is very familiar to me from my clinical work, may be familiar to you or from your personal life or your knowledge of your friends and family or whatever, that people who have, let's say, a very difficult start in life and are then bullied at school and then raped as a teenager and then end up in a violent relationship are quite likely to find it very, very difficult to get out of accumulating further violent relationships, further awful things that happen. So we need to get in there early. And just to make it very clear, this also applies, in, in fact, it applies, if anything, more strongly in the things we call psychosis. So this is a slide I always show to teams when I'm training the mental health teams. It usually stops them in their tracks. Uh, people who experience three kinds of abuse, 18 times more likely to be psychotic, five times abuse, 193 times more likely to be psychotic, whatever that is. So this really is a strong challenge to the traditional psychiatric way of thinking, which goes something like person A, unfortunately, mother was unable to care for her, bullied at school, sexually assaulted as a young woman, ended up in a violent relationship, by an unfortunate coincidence, age 25 or 30, developed bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or a personality disorder. It is nonsense. This is not another unfortunate event in a long line of unfortunate events. This represents the understandable emotional consequence of the very difficult things that have happened to people. And in trauma-informed practice, and I, mean, I don't use the word psychosis or the word delusions, but anyway... The unusual experiences that people report, like the voices they hear, the unusual experiences they have, the unusual beliefs they may hold, are clues. They are clues to the story. They are a sign that although we can repress and push away some of these awful, overwhelmingly distressing memories, they will leak out sometimes. And, you know, we know this. I'm sure some of you know this already. The vo work of the Hearing Voices Network, for example, so-called you know, symptoms of schizophrenia like hostile voices, not at all coincidentally, will quite often rep say the same things as the person who abused you or sound like the stepfather who hurt you or say the same things as the children who bullied you at school. These are clues to what's gone on. Not symptoms, but clues to the survival strategies. And we need to put in the bigger picture because these things don't happen in isolation. In deprived communities, I mean, trauma can happen in any background, but on average, deprived communities have higher levels of trauma, violence, and abuse. So another set of ACEs, adverse community environments, communities impacted by structural violence, places where people struggle to survive economically, socially, violent neighbourhoods, poor housing, few opportunities, and so on. It's kind of common sense, but... It's always useful to have research to back up common sense because so much mental health research is a complete waste of time. I would say 98.9% .9 of it is. This is good stuff. You know, there are layers and layers and layers to the, you know, to the context within which traumas and adversities arise. 
So this is a nice little diagram. The pair of aces, the adverse childhood experiences are like the tree, and the adverse community environments unfortunately provide the soil in which the tree grows. So clearly we need to tackle things at both levels. Okay. So how does this work? This is my way of putting it together. You might start with deprived communities, not necessarily. As I said, things like abuse and domestic violence can happen in any social background, but statistically more likely, there are statistically likely to be three times as many ACs experienced by someone growing up in the poorest fifth of the population as compared to the richest fifth. So within deprived communities, you are more likely to find carers struggling with their own difficulties that may be unresolved, that may make it less easy for them to give their own children secure attachments, jargon term for kind of secure, loving early relationships, which of course sets children up to deal less well with everything else that life throws at them because they've unfortunately lacked that secure base. And as human beings, we have all evolved to be able to use certain things that you, that you can call threat responses, automatic or to some extent automatic bodily responses, fight, flight, freeze. You come across that automatic freeze or fight or flight when faced with a, a threat that might be physical, might be emotional, might be social. Dissociation is a very key mechanism in the trauma-informed literature. The ability we have, I mean, a very useful creative ability to cut off from emotionally overwhelming experiences and memories but as I was saying earlier they don't disappear they leak out but they may not be available to conscious autobiographical memory we attribute certain meanings we feel betrayed distrustful unsafe ashamed guilty and so on we of course engage in ongoing attempts to create safety to control our feelings to escape from emotional pain and bad memories and the many, many ways we attempt to do this in trauma-informed language or threat responses in psychiatric terms or symptoms include those and many other ways. You know, we, 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 do, we resort to these responses at various levels of conscious awareness and various levels of conscious control to survive what's happened to us. So in trauma-informed language, symptoms are survival strategies. Now, I wouldn't use the word symptoms, but symptoms are survival strategies. They are not things to be eliminated by so-called medication. They are survival attempts to be honoured, to be witnessed, to be... We need to respect the creative ways in which people learn to survive the most horrendous circumstances. And sometimes the jargon term is people are still living in trauma time. Their bodies and minds are still existing as though the threat is live now. And of course, it might be live now if you're still living in a violent relationship, let's say, but quite often it isn't live now. And people may need support and understanding and some techniques and ideas in order to move on because the survival responses may no longer be necessary. So, it's, I really want to emphasise it's not inevitable that people who have difficult early lives or difficult events in their lives have long-term damaging effects. It isn't inevitable. Uh, these are on average figures. And um, so we know that there are all sorts of things that could come in between that affect how likely it is that on average there may be some long-term difficulty. So this is a research-based list. All of these things, if they're present, mean that it's 
more likely that there will be some long-term negative effects. Insecure early attachments, you know, early relationships that weren't what they could have been if it happened when you were younger, if the abuse went on longer, if there were more abuse incidents, if the danger is more severe, and so on and so on. You turn that list on its head, and all of those things um, make it more likely that you will survive relatively well. So if you had a good start in life, if whatever it was didn't happen until you were a bit older, if it's a one-off incident rather than multiple incidents. Most importantly, whether there was someone who was able to offer you support that you could confide in and feel protected by. So, you know, I have worked with many, many people who've survived such horrendous series of events that I've wondered how they're still managing to sit in front of me. And I have frequently said to them, how come it seems that even with all your difficulties, you're still here sitting in front of me telling me this story and they've quite typically said something like well I'm not sure if I would have survived had it not been that I used to go to Nan's after school for tea every day and that's my little refuge or I had one teacher who believed in me or I had my older brother who protected me or whatever. So you know it's never to, and I also want to emphasize it's never too late for healing to happen and as professionals, we can be that person. We can be that person. I think that's one of our main roles. That person may not have existed in someone's early life, but we can be that person. Okay, I'm going to stop very, very shortly, but very, very briefly, what do we do about it? I mean, this again, I'm just flashing slides at you, I'm afraid. So the implication of this is obviously not that we're dealing with a whole lot of separate conditions like bipolar disorder and depression and personality disorder and anxiety disorders. The implication is that these are a range of overlapping ways that people struggle to survive difficult circumstances past and present. Uh, somebody I'm sure is going to say or wants to say already, what about people who haven't suffered obvious traumas? I'm going to come on to that. Um, but many, many people in services have. So what you need then is not the kind of ludicrous kind of diagnostically based or cluster based pathways that we're unfortunately saddled with at the moment, treatment for early onset psychosis, the eating disorder pathway or whatever. I'm not saying they don't do some good work, but it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of people's distress and its origins. You actually need a first stage. Most people will need to go to the first stage, which in trauma-informed practice is called stabilisation work. It's not about digging up the difficult memories. It's about establishing safety. It's about education, the kind of stuff I've told you today. It's about learning to get a bit better control over your feelings, your behaviours that may be causing you problems, safety in your life. And that's a common, the last place I worked, the last service I worked, we were quite successful in getting all mental health professionals to offer stabilisation as a first step. It's not complicated stuff, but it's important stuff. Um, trauma processing work, some people at some point may, or they may not, or they may choose to come back to this sometime later, it's entirely up to them, may decide, I actually want to go back and revisit some of this awful stuff. And you can do that in various ways, lots of different therapeutic modalities. I don't take a lot of notice of different therapeutic modalities because certainly with a trauma-informed um, approach, the key qualities are trust, respect, listening, witnessing, healing, validating. Those can occur and certainly should occur across any therapeutic modality. 
and finally, we hope that people reach a stage of reconnection. If you're interested in any of this stuff for yourself, for anywhere you're working, that's a free download of a pack that a group of psychologists and service users developed in my last service about stabilisation materials. It's about simple educational summary of the trauma-informed stuff, how trauma can affect your mind and body, simple ways of managing mood swings, flashbacks, anxiety, panic, non-medical ways of understanding the various things that may be diagnostically based. Feel free to download, circulate, use, whatever you want. So we're actually almost on time, which is good. So what I think we need to be heading for, and we have got some way towards this in some services, a trauma-informed formulation-based approach as opposed to a diagnostically-based uh, biomedical approach, of which the key assumptions are we're dealing with people with problems, not patients with illnesses. Symptoms are better understood as survival mechanisms, essential in the face of overwhelming events and circumstances, but they may have outlived their usefulness. Instead of asking what's wrong with you, what, we need to ask what's happened to you, a very common survivor slogan. Instead of diagnosing people, we need to listen to their stories. But this is an important question posed by Judith Herman, author of the extraordinarily wonderful book, Trauma and Recovery. The knowledge of horrible events periodically intrudes into public awareness, but is rarely retained for long. Clinicians know the privileged moment of insight when repressed ideas, feelings, and memories surface into consciousness. Victims who've been silenced begin to reveal their secrets. Survivors challenge us to reconnect fragments, to reconstruct history, to make meaning of their present symptoms in the light of past events. So I think that's such an important quote and distressing and awful as it is to hear about all the scandals we know about, Jimmy Savile, Catholic Church, North Wales Children's Homes, etc., etc. It is, I think, a sign that these stories are bubbling up to the surface. There is somewhat greater willingness to hear this, because at all levels we don't want to hear it. People themselves may not find it bearable to hear their own story, Professionals may not be equipped to listen to it and may find it overwhelming, if, particularly if they are not supported themselves to hear these stories. Systems and services don't want to hear these stories. Societies as a whole do not want to hear these stories. It is our duty and our privilege as professionals to be witness to these stories, and it is our duty as a society to be able to listen to these stories and act on the implications and the consequences for all of us. This is the story of a ludicrously, ridiculously, stupidly ambitious project called the Power Threat Meaning Framework, and I'm going to give you links in a minute. All the materials and resources are free, but in essence, this project was launched in January 2018, just over a year ago, and it was funded by the Division of Clinical Psychology, which is my professional body, and it's an attempt to move beyond the medical model, the diagnostic model of mental distress that we've just been talking about, or as I prefer to call it, human emotional suffering. Um, so it seemed to us as though that although there's a lot of good practice out there, and this is not an attempt to replace existing good practice, there's a lot of non-diagnostic good practice, some formulation-based practice, hearing voices approaches, narrative therapy, open dialogue, I expect some of these things are familiar to you. What we actually need, it seemed to a group of us, 
is that we need a kind of overarching framework that actually supports and validates and gives evidence for all of these approaches so we can make a really fundamental shift away from the failed medical model towards something that is fundamentally different. So these are contributors to the project over a five-year period. The people in the main uh, group are all psychologists and I'm afraid it's a very incestuous group. We've all known each other for years, if not decades. And Eleanor and Jackie are survivors, who some of you may have come across. So it's a co-produced project in the jargon. It was produced jointly with service user survivors. We also had a service user carer consultancy group and a total group as the project continued. And this ended up being a five-year project that included about 40 people, about a third of whom had actual experience of, um, of mental health services. So... This is just giving you a kind of overview of where you might want to go should you be interested in looking at this further. So there is a main version of the Power Threat Meaning Framework available online only, and everything can be found at the orange link below, and there's a shorter printed version which is available free to anybody who emails that address. You don't have to be a psychologist. So the main version is a very, very detailed overview of the existing research or the philosophical principles on which diagnosis and indeed the whole conceptual systems that support it are based. It includes some feedback from our service user group. It includes a chapter eight, which makes some provisional suggestions about how we could not use diagnosis in all sorts of ways in which it's currently seen to be necessary, like um, commissioning services, access to welfare and benefits, court reports, and so on and so on. But you don't need to read the whole document unless you're feeling particularly uh, bored and have six months to spare with nothing else to do. Um, but the framework itself is there. There are also videos of, from the launch, which might be an easier way to get your head around this. There's a two-page summary, which is the simplest way of getting your head around it. There is a guided discussion on that same link, which is if you're interested in thinking about any of these ideas in relation to yourself, to someone you're working with, to someone you're supporting with, supporting, the guided discussion is a way of thinking about how you might talk someone through these ideas in relation to their own life. And this is applies to all of us. This is a framework that does not recognise a distinction between so-called mentally ill and the rest of us. This is a framework about all of us, so the guided discussion might be of use to any one of us. Okay, so this is a ridiculously ambitious attempt to replace some of the functions that diagnosis claims but fails to do, in our view. That's why we think we need psychiatric diagnosis. We think it summarises the evidence about causal factors, we think it shows how to group stereotypes experience together. We think it suggests ways forward, provides a basis for research, and provides a basis for administrative decisions. And we would argue that it does all those things quite poorly, but we have made suggestions about how our framework could do any, all of those things more effectively. But more importantly, we wanted to construct a framework that recognises that emotional distress and troubled or troubling behaviour are understandable responses to a person's history and circumstances, that restores the link between distress and social injustice. Very relevant to what Joel was saying earlier. We live in a difficult society, and we've found a very good way of disconnecting our awareness of that from the distress that suffer as a result. We call it diagnosis. We apply diagnosis, we, we obscure the story. We obscure the story at an individual level, but we also obscure the links with wider issues of social inequality and social injustice. 
So we want our framework to restore that link, to increase people's access to power and resources, and to be a way of creating validating narratives as an alternative to diagnosis. And I just want to say at this point that we hope we've taken this quite a long way beyond formulation as such. You know, if in services, I think formulation as a particular form of narrative does have its uses. But actually, we wanted to get beyond service provision, beyond something that is seen as having to be done by professionals. We wanted to use narratives to recognise the myriad ways in which people as sense makers and meaning makers create stories about their lives, whether it's art, music, poetry, dance, whether it's community myths, rituals, legends, all sorts of things that you know, some non-Western cultures are much more in touch with than we currently are. So it's about narratives of which formulation is a subsection. And of course, it's about promoting social action. So in essence, this is the um, memorable phrase of Mary Boyle, who with me was one of, was, we are the two lead authors of the framework, moving beyond the DSM mindset. It's not just about replacing this set of terms with something else. It's, we really didn't want to just say, instead of talking about psychosis, schizophrenia, we'll talk about traumatic psychosis. You know, we'll, instead of using diagnosis, we'll add a formulation on to flesh it out. There's a lot of that kind of thinking and practice around. We wanted to go move well away from this false analogy, this assumption that models that can be applied to understand what goes wrong in our bodies, which actually work pretty well in general medicine, can be applied to people's thoughts, feelings and behaviours. So we need a fundamentally different approach, one that understands people in their social and relational environments, sees them as acting and making meanings within their life circumstances. So when it came out, when we crawled exhaustedly towards the launch in January 2018, thinking, I wonder if anyone will ever read this nightmare document that's taken over our entire lives, but maybe not a single person will, but at least we've got it on our desks. We had no idea at all what kind of reception it would receive. Um, it succeeded at least in getting people talking beyond our wildest dreams, so that just over a year later, there is a Spanish translation, Italian, Danish and Portuguese translations are being planned. There's been a lot of interest across the UK, within and beyond services. Uh, peer groups, some, many survivors, not all, have, have welcomed it. I have just come back from a tour of New Zealand and Australia, uh, an invited tour uh, with John Crombie, one of the contributors. And all of these things are, as we had hoped, kind of leading to other offshoots, if you like. This is a set of ideas. It is not a plan for practice. So it's very much up to anyone who's interested to think, is this useful? How can I take it forward in my own way? How can I adapt it, fiddle around with it, change it? That was the intention. And it appears to be spreading and doing that effectively. So it seems like it's come at the right moment. Who knows how far it will spread? Not surprisingly, it's also aroused quite a lot of dissent. It's what we expected. What I think we were less prepared for was the degree of really quite malicious and active hostility that has been from some quarters, uh, which brings me to the hashtag, hashtag PTM framework. If you want to use that hashtag to put on anything that stops short of sexist personal abuse, it'll be welcome because it'll be better than some of the stuff that's up there. So it kind of goes with the territory. So I'm going to give you the briefest overview of this, and then we will have a bit of time to talk about what might any questions that you have. So because this is such a complex document, we've kind of hung it on these core questions. This is a, a simple, the simplest we can make it way of 
hanging these complex ideas onto some core questions. So these are the core questions that the framework asks. What has happened to you in PTM terms? That means how, does, how is power operating your life? How did it affect you? What kind of threats does this pose? What sense did you make of it? What is the meaning of these experiences to you? What did you have to do to survive? What kind of threats responses are you using? And you would probably want to add or perhaps start with what are your strengths and to pull it all together, what is your story? Obviously, it doesn't mean you literally sit down and ask these questions. These are indications of the areas we need to look at and you can adapt them, you can start any way you like. And you will find if you do use the guided discussion that by the time you've thought a bit about one of them, you've implicitly thought quite a bit about all the others because they're not separate areas. They are questions that are different angles on the same phenomenon, if you like. It's not like bio plus psycho plus social. This is different aspects of the same phenomenon. So, okay, I'm going to talk you through a little bit what we mean by these questions. And the major thing we hope the framework has added is a really strong emphasis on the role of power. This, again, I think will link up quite well to Joel's talk, so I may be able to do this relatively briefly, but an awareness of the impact of power in all its guises is obviously totally omitted from a medical model. It's actively excluded if we're trying to see this as something going on with some someone's bodies, but it's missing from most therapeutic approaches as well, not all. So it's not just diagnosis as such we're challenging, it's kind of individualising. It's, you know, the IAP stuff is a very good example of an individualising approach, you know, to say that you need to recover by tweaking the thoughts in your head, your negative thoughts is not a big improvement on saying you need to recover by tweaking the chemistry in your brain. It's the same way of thinking, which we're challenging because it obscures the role of power. So you don't need to look at, read all those small words, but in essence, we have looked at a number of different types of power. So what has happened to you is the survivor slogan. Our questions are an expansion of that slogan. Instead of asking what's wrong with you, ask what's happened to you. And there's a number of forms of power that we can think about and should be thinking about. Legal power, economic and material power, interpersonal power, which covers a lot of the trauma stuff, the ways in which people can hurt and neglect and abuse and uh, be un variously unkind and damaging to each other. Biological power, coercive power, social and cultural capital, and ideological power. I'm pleased that Joel's done a, quite a good introduction to ideological power. He's talked a lot about austerity and capitalism and all that kind of stuff. So we wanted our model really to incorporate this less obvious form of power, power that is transmitted by use of language, by certain worldviews, by unquestioned assumptions. Um, so hidden and yet extremely influential. So as Joel was saying, the austerity narrative, for example, is a very good example of an ideology. It's a worldview that isn't evidence-based as such. It's more a set of come or comes along with a set of values. It's supported by certain language uses, like we need to kind of pull in our belts and you know balance the books and scroungers and skivers and all the rest of it. And like many ideologies, it tends to work in favour of people who are already better off and at the expense of people who are already less privileged. So it seems to us that one of the major influences of power and the most hidden and damaging influences of power is the way that people who don't have access to other forms of information are deprived of alternative ways of making sense of their experiences. 
we like the term epistemic injustice used by Miranda Fricker, who's a philosopher, originally to apply to the ways in which women's voices, for example, may be systematically discounted. But it can apply more widely than that. So from the framework perspective, biomedical model psychiatry, which is not supported by evidence, which is supported by many vested ideological interests, which on the whole works in the interests of people who are already more powerful or more influential, businesses, people, professions, and at the expense of people who are already less privileged and powerful, that's probably why they end up in services in the first place, is a prime example of an ideology. And imposing a diagnosis is an act of epistemic injustice. And if you find, if you object to your diagnosis, particularly if you're in services, you will soon find out this isn't an option. You will soon find out where the power lies. You may well be deemed to be lacking insight to have to have injections of toxic chemicals put into various parts of your body and so on. Okay, so a month or so ago, I was speaking to an audience of 60 psychiatrists and I looked them in the eye and told them that. And uh, nobody disagreed with me, interestingly. But, thank you, but I would like to say I was invited by a psychiatrist who really wanted his colleagues to hear this, so it's not about psychiatrists versus others. It's the very wonderful Sammy Tamimi who invited me, actually. So, anyway, how did it affect you? Obviously, the negative impact of power can affect you in various ways. I'm doing a bit of a whiz-through, as I said, so we're used to thinking about some of these, yet less used, I think, to thinking about what it feels like to be excluded from your social community, which is a probable consequence of receiving a diagnosis of being, having very little money, which we tend almost to take for granted that people end up in service has very little money, um, with, without really in thinking about how that might, in, might be expressed through their distress. Environmental, bodily, value-based and meaning-making. We're back to ideological power again. We're not used to thinking about this. Threats to the ability to create valued meanings about important aspects of your, of your life. Stroke imposition of others' meanings. I mean, again, some of Joel's stuff is relevant. You know, how much are we encouraged to question materialism and consumerism and all this kind of stuff? You know, we might choose to do that, but actually we live in a society where that's presented as the way to be. Okay, what sense did you make of it? This is more the territory of formulation and of therapists, but we really wanted to expand what is currently meant by meaning. What do we mean by meaning? So meaning is not about tweaking the thoughts that, particularly in more westernised societies, we tend perhaps sometimes to think of as a bit like, you know, typeset in our heads. Actually, individual meanings are never just freely chosen. Meaning is both made and found. Where do our individual meanings come from? It's not good enough as therapists or as anyone else simply to work with people at the level of personal meanings which is kind of implicitly blaming, isn't it? Why are you thinking this weird way? If you thought differently, you wouldn't be so depressed. And that's kind of the implicit message of a lot of IAP stuff. But also of a lot of therapies, I have to say. So we've placed a lot of emphasis on the role of discourses in shaping our meanings, common assumptions that we share probably as members of the same society, which in turn are deeply embedded in ideological meanings which serve certain interests. So I'm going to give you a tiny, tiny illustration of that. I have worked with many, many women who have been raped or sexually abused, and each and every one of them has come along to me and said, I feel guilty, I feel shamed, it's my fault, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. And 
after a bit, you start to think, well, how come each and every woman is individually, shamefully coming along and telling me this, and we can work this with this at an individual level, we can change some of these meanings, but actually it makes a lot more sense to get people together in a group, as I did in my last place of work, along with colleagues, so that that woman can look across the room at another woman saying exactly the same thing and say, well, of course it wasn't her fault. You know, so perhaps it isn't my fault. So perhaps we can think about where do these ideas come from? And they're to do with complicated things, aren't they? About what we understand about women's roles and women's sexuality and how it should be expressed and who's responsible for it and men and their sexuality and how should that be expressed and who's responsible for it and the whole social discourse about trauma and whether we're willing to listen to it which has deeply embedded ideological interests and meanings like how willing are we actually to look honestly at the impact, the prevalence of violence and abuse in women's and girls' lives. All sorts of interests in not doing that. And there are, there are parallel examples for men. There are parallel examples for men. So the most powerful way forward, as we found in our groups, is actually to look at discourses and ideological meanings as well because that way victims can turn into survivors. It's not the only way of doing it. Many, you know, consciousness raising, all this kind of stuff. We're not the first to say that, obviously. But we need this embedded in our core conceptual framework. What did you have to do to survive? I'm going to whiz through this because this is the stuff we were talking about earlier. Threat responses, we've borrowed a lot of this in the trauma-informed literature, as you can see. Threat responses are actually survival responses. And of course, so, this, so this is a way of including the role of the body, not in a simplistic low serotonin causes your depression way, but in a much more sophisticated way, a kind of obvious way, really. Our bodies mediate and enable all our human experience. All aspects of our human experience are mediated, enabled through our bodies, but we're not looking at simple cause-effect, body, this happened, this, this distress resulted way. But we wanted to go wider than what are traditionally seen as symptoms or even within trauma-informed practice threat responses because we wanted to acknowledge that many of the things that we think are socially acceptable and even desirable can actually be seen as threat responses for some people. So I'll own up to that, overwork something. When life gets difficult, I'm quite liable to spend six hours solid in front of my computer. It has some secondary benefits, but it's not healthy. But I'm not going to get diagnosed and medicated for that. It's social, I don't think it's socially valued, as are other things that are seen as normal and desirable, but actually perhaps we should be questioning more. So, and we also really wanted to query the kind of really unhelpful way of thinking that is prevalent in psychology as well as psychiatry, which is about what causes this? What causes depression? What causes hearing voices? What causes psychosis? It's nonsense, really. If you think about what causes depression, if you deconstruct that word and start asking instead what causes people to feel miserable, desperate, suicidal, hopeless, trapped and stuck, the only possible answer is lots of things. Yeah. So the only possible way of looking at it, really, is what function is that serving at the moment? You know, what sense does that make to you in your situation, in your story? but actually we find it very difficult to think in those kinds of ways because psychiatric practice obscures the links between threats and threat responses by imposing a diagnosis and then treating an illness. So a main purpose of the framework is to restore the link between threats and threat responses 
which is exactly the same as saying restoring the link between personal distress and social injustice. So take the example of depression. This is something that we seem to see at one level and immediately blind ourselves to. We kind of know that people are much more likely to be depressed in areas of high deprivation. And we also know that those areas are actually being flooded with so-called antidepressants. And we also know that people actually have very good reason to feel more miserable if they're living in those areas. And as soon as we know that, we start talking about an epidemic of depression and us pouring billions of pounds or dollars into more effective treatments for depression. So it's like we can't hold on to it. We know it and we deny it. And if actually that's a sensible way of looking at it, we would find that flooding the whole country or particular communities with antidepressants would make people, you know, it, it looks like people, the level of distress doesn't get any less. It's well established that any given community or indeed country levels of distress rise in tandem with the flooding in of psychiatric drugs. Something's gone wrong there, isn't there? Should be less distress, not more. So, whiz, whiz, whiz. I want to talk very briefly about what we've attempted to do in terms of establishing general patterns of reactions to distress that are kind of superordinate, that are overarching narratives that can support the construction of individual personal narratives or social or group narratives. And in order to think about this, we spent a long time agonising about this. What medical diagnosis does when it works is to identify patterns in the body. So patterns of this goes wrong at a cellular level, let's say this affects your pancreas, your liver, your kidneys, this results in these bodily symptoms. So that's a pattern an evidence-based pattern of what goes wrong in your body, what would be the equivalent type of pattern that could help to identify regularities in the expression and experience of distress? That was our core question, in a way, because until we can make some stab at that, we can't really claim that we're doing more than kind of, you know, cobbling together some good practice ideas. We can't claim that we're at least attempting to outline the first steps of a conceptual framework that can support all of that. So after a lot of thinking, we made the kind of conceptual leap, which is we need to be thinking about patterns that are organised by meaning, not by biology. Okay, so I'm going to try and explain that in a minute. The, the patterns we've provisionally identified, of course, include the role of biology, but they are organised by meaning. And as soon as you make that leap, you realise that all sorts of things that are very puzzling to diagnostic systems, like expressions of distress change across time, they change historically, and they vary across cultures, which shouldn't happen if these are actually biological patterns, should they? Because we all have the same bodies. But of course they will happen if patterns are organised by meanings, because discourses will vary, cultures will vary in their meanings. So we've described these patterns as verbs, not nouns, things people do, think, not things people they have. I'm going to give you the briefest possible illustration. These are seven evidence-based patterns. You can read a whole lot more about it if you want, but just to give you a flavour of it, these are patterns that cut across diagnoses, cut across specialties, cut across so-called ill and well, mentally ill and normal, mad and sane. So if you look at pattern number four, I should also say these are evidence-based patterns where there's a great deal of evidence we've assembled, which looked at through a particular way, supports the existence of these patterns that haven't just come out of our heads. 
Pattern number four, for example, I've worked with a whole lot of young people who have come along variously diagnosed with eating disorders or early onset psychosis or whatever else, per early emerging personality disorder, whatever the hell that is, and so on and so on. And it seemed to me, getting to know them, that a great many of them, not absolutely all of them, when you got down to it and looked at their stories, were struggling with you know, a common dilemma of that kind of age. Who am I? How can I separate from my family of origin? What values do I have? How do I want to understand myself? What kind of life do I want to lead? And it actually makes sense, rather than setting these people off on separate diagnostic-based pathways for treatment, to address this at a level of a core meaning-based dilemma about separation and identity confusion. You know, which may have, you know, they, there may be particular strategies that are helpful for people who struggle with their eating or who hear hostile voices and so on. But this is not about psychosis and eating disorders. This is fundamentally about a meaning-based dilemma. And I haven't got time to give you further illustrations from that list, but actually, based on what I've already said, we can assume that those partic that particular dilemma, for example, because it tends to emerge in a particular way in a particular social cultural context, if you unpick it and unpick any of these patterns, which were drawn up by largely Western people in a Western setting, you will sooner or later bump up against implicit Western norms and assumptions, some of the ones Joel was talking about which are so deeply embedded in ways of thinking, probably for most of us in this room, but maybe not everyone, that we rarely, rarely pull them out and examine them critically. We tend to assume that this is what life is about. So for our young person, it is going to be, you know, why is this such a difficult transition point for young people? They may not have obvious traumas. They may have come from a loving, supportive family, as many of our struggling young people do. They may be materially comfortable, but look at what we're expecting of them. And actually look at how those dilemmas are likely to be massively intensified within a particular family structure, the nuclear family structure, that we take as normal, that we all live in separate boxes, isolated from other people's separate boxes. And we have to go away and set up our own separate box so we hardly know the neighbours and we may be 200 miles away from our family of origin. I don't want to idealise extended family structures, but the dilemma would present itself in a rather a different way in that kind of structure. And where do nuclear family structures come from? They come, it's generally theorised anyway, from the need to meet certain economic demands. They've, this structure arose along with industrialisation, the need for families to be mobile, to move around the country, to fill gaps in the labour market. They may not be, and there's lots of evidence that they are not, the best way of supporting good mental health. So can you see how you trace it back and you find all sorts of cultural meanings and assumptions and ultimately ideological interests? So... Again, in the briefest possible way, I want to look at what is sometimes problematically called culture. As I said, we are in the process of exporting the diagnostic model across the globe. The power threat meaning framework does not find it problematic that expressions and experiences of distress and ways of healing it vary across the globe. But it's a problem for DSM and ICD, and the way they've solved that problem or tried to is have a separate appendix called culture-bound syndromes 
which, yeah, it's true, which roughly translates as weird things that they seem to do in China or Brazil that we haven't quite managed to squeeze back into our category system yet. I mean, I'm being a bit sarcastic, obviously. Is this an unusual way people get depressed in China? Let's call it depression. Okay, so, of course it's nonsense, every expression of distress is a culture-bound syndrome. I hope that's clear from what I've said. But I want to illustrate this by an example. This is an example from the culture-bound syndrome chapter of DSM-4, Spirit Possession. I don't know how widely this is currently used, but you can read that. There's been a lot of efforts trying to translate this particular experience back into what DSM would call psychosis. This experience is found in northern Uganda, where civil wars resulted in widespread brutality and the abduction and forced recruitment of children as soldiers. In this phenomenon, young people report their identities being taken over by the malevolent ghost of a dead person. It has been found to be associated with high levels of war trauma with abduction, and the spirit was often identified as someone the abductees are being forced to kill. I hope you understand what I mean when I say we could understand this within the power threat meaning framework without having to call it schizophrenia or psychosis. Did you get that? And um, we don't have to translate it back into PTMF terms either, but the existence of the PTMF, I hope, would tend to encourage us to support, to validate, to learn from the many interesting and creative ways that, you know, other cultures than the ones in which, from which DSM has emerged are understanding, experiencing distress which is why I was particularly keen, pleased when I was in New Zealand and Australia recently to be able to have two two-day workshops, one in Auckland, one in Adelaide, where I was able in the first one to do a presentation of the framework to an audience consisting quite a lot of, quite a lot of Maori speakers and practitioners and in Adelaide to um, some Aboriginal speakers because I really, really wanted to do this sort of compare and contrast. I thought this would be fascinating. So the second day in New Zealand, we had a lot about, talk, talked a lot about Māori creation myths. And interestingly, in New Zealand, they do have parallel services open to Māori and what they call Pakea, European um, inhabitants, who can also access these services, where there is an understanding that this particular form of narrative is a culturally appropriate and helpful way of understanding and healing. So... We were very keen in the framework to open up the possibility of this framework being applicable to indigenous peoples. It's not our job as a largely white uh, group of authors to say how that might look, but we wanted to include very clearly the fact that these causal factors are relevant in distress. They're not the usual causal ones you see, or rather they go beyond that. It's going beyond the kind of, you know, abuse and poverty and so on, to include histories of colonisation, intergenerational trauma, relationship to the natural world, integration of mind, body, spirit, which are you know, ways of understanding that in westernised societies we have largely lost. And we also wanted to include these ways of reclaiming power and identity and agency. So again, that's going beyond, you know, we need more therapy or better drugs. Healing needs to go beyond that because the causes, the causal factors go beyond that. So it's about all sorts of ways in which we can address these issues as, as communities. And I came away thinking, I've got lots of ideas about how to rewrite the framework, thinking we have so much to learn from this. So 
um, sorry. So the feedback from the Auckland workshop from the Māori speakers, that is, um, you don't, haven't got these slides because I do what I always annoyingly do is I add slides two minutes before I'm about to do a presentation. But if you go on that website, you can read my blogs, www.madinguk.com. This was feedback from the Auckland workshop from the Māori attenders, which was really validating. And, you know, it's only one workshop, but it suggests we're on the right tracks. And it certainly suggested me that, you know, I learnt an awful lot that I hope to be able to integrate into the framework. And I wanted to show you one slide from the Australian presentation. So this is an, some interesting work by a guy called Bernard Guerin, who's taken some of the criteria for diagnosing borderline personality disorder and shown, those are the ones in italics, and shown how that plays out in the lives of Aboriginal people who, I'm sure you know, have been subjected to appalling racism, discrimination, genocide, really, over the generations. So is it surprising that these, in italics, DSM criteria are features of people's reactions, given the context in bold type that decades of forced separation from caregivers, loss of family kinship system, grief and hopelessness from cumulative loss, and so on. I think you can see what I mean if I say that Applying these models, which don't work in Western settings, adds an extra layer of epistemic injustice to people from non-Western cultures and sets the scene for further violence and discrimination and abuse. So, that's me, only five minutes beyond time. And sorry that was so much. You have the slides on most of them. And I'm very happy to take some questions, uh, queries, challenges, violent disagreements and... Anything else you care to throw at me? Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned that there was a lot of hostility. Is it clear where the hostility is coming to? Coming from, sorry. <laughs> Where's the hostility coming from? Is this bit being recorded? How frank can I be? Um, well, it's coming from some sources that you might... It's largely confined to social media, actually, which is interesting. So it's very always very hard to know how representative voices on social media are. Uh, so the easiest thing is to come off Twitter, which I will do one day. Uh, it's coming from some expected sources, people who are very diagnostically committed, professionals of all backgrounds. It's also coming from some survivor groups and... I really want to emphasise that the framework is about, it's, you know, we, this is not policy, this is not practice, this is not something all psychologists are being mandated to do, this is our attempt to outline in a rather dense philosophical conceptual document what an alternative might look like. Nobody has to read it, like it, implement it, take it on or believe it. But it clearly is challenging to some survivor perspectives and I respect that and I want people to know that nobody has to see their problems in this way. But I'm a, I am a little bit worried when I feel like we're getting the message of nobody should even have written this stuff, you know, which is the message that's come across, I feel, from some quarters. And I think that often happens where there's a very fundamental challenge to someone's identity, whether that's identity as a professional who does these good things. We all like to think we're doing good things. But, you know, identity can take various forms and even quite devalued identities like being mentally ill have their 
you know, sometimes they're necessary advantages for people to survive, but they become part of you sometimes in a way that can be difficult to stand back from. That's my best guess. But nobody has to like this, nobody has to agree with it, no one has to see their problems in this way if they don't think it fits. At the moment, people are not offered choices. At the very least, I hope this opens up choices. There's some more. There's several hands. Hi there. Um, so just to say, um, I'm, I'm a novice. I'm not a mental health professional, so I apologise if this question is not informed. Um, it feels like um, a lot of today, and, and especially your presentation, um, is suggesting that the kind of traditional scientific model, medicalised model, isn't necessarily the way we should move forward. Um, and I have read the odd book, an article here and there about how the disconnect from for indigenous groups, for example, from nature massively impacts their mental health, leads to high rates of alcoholism, etc. Yet we live in a world where the NHS won't do anything unless there's thousands of scientific research evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I've read the other day about na nature prescribing and that to get more evidence, we need to have an attempt at creating doses of nature, which also feels kind of not quite right. So I was just, how do you reconcile the fact that what we're saying is this purely scientific model doesn't work, but we need scientific evidence <laughs> to get funding to do it. Okay. Um, in the framework, one of the things we've done is to try and deconstruct the notion of evidence. What counts as evidence, that is ideologically driven as well, as is the idea that there are certain forms of evidence that are more valid, that we have this epistemological hierarchy, if you want to use that kind of term, where the randomised control trial is the best, and what people actually say about their experience hardly counts at all, it's anecdotal. I mean, this is nonsense. So part of what we've done is to try to say, we need all forms of evidence, but different forms of evidence are useful for different purposes and throw different light on different aspects of the problem. So I partly want to, we really, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the more powerful ideological forces that is used to silence survivor voices, among other things, but to keep the show on the road is what we understand to be evidence. You know, IAPT is supposed to have evidence, as we heard earlier, even in its own terms, it's not evidence-based. But I guess the practical question in services is we need to play this game to some extent. Of course we do. You know, we need to be both pragmatic and idealistic. So... I'm certainly quite interested in can we produce evidence that let's say formulation practice based practice works and perhaps produce that in quite a standard way looking at sort of outcomes or medication use or whatever I mean I'd be up for that but we actually need to be challenging and go beyond that and in the main version we've got quite a long chapter on research which is about looking at the forms of research and evidence that might be more suitable to the understanding of human emotional distress because fundamentally we don't think a positivist approach which supports a lot of our current conception of what counts as evidence, which leads to who disseminates it, who benefits from it, who owns it, who interprets it, who implements it, is an appropriate model for understanding human emotional suffering. There's questions at the back. Evidence space, how I hate that term. Psychologists aren't meant to say that, by the way. 
Hi. Um, so the PTMF was published by um, the DCP of the by, um, British Psychological um, Society, um, or British Psychologist Society. Um, how committed are they in like continuing? Are they in continuing the development of the PTMF? Because presumably it's not a sort of like oh it's launched now so it's done and this is how it's going to stay now forever. That's not what it sounded like when you presented it. Um, Sorry, I didn't hear that last sentence. Presumably it's... Presumably it's not a matter of, like, it has launched now and this is how it's going to stay forever. It's not meant to be a static document, is it? No, no it's going to be evolving, yeah. I hope. Yeah. So um, like, how committed are, are the DCP to continue um, investing in that, um, in, in the development of it and sort of hearing the voices and collecting stories from other cultures? Um, are they sort of still investing in... Um, collecting information from BME and other communities, other cultures, um, yeah, what, what efforts are being made in continuing the progress? Okay, I guess firstly I want to say that part of the point of this is that people take it and run with it, so it doesn't have to be DCP or BPS led or supported, you know, it's free knowledge, if you want it it's there, do what you like with it, let us know, it'd be fantastic. But the DCP and the, indeed the BPS have been very supportive and are continuing to be very supportive, which is great. And so they've set up, um, or we're in the process of setting up a kind of committee of people who are committed to taking this forward. And the very first step is to collate information about what's going on, to expand the website. I gave you the link, but it's rather a minimal website at the moment, to linking with stakeholders, including survivors and service users, and generally to kind of spreading the word. So, so far, so good. So, I mean, there were a few bumps along the way, which I perhaps won't talk about publicly. But I might if someone buys me a drink afterwards. So it hasn't, I wouldn't like to say it's been entirely straightforward, but you know, actually the BPS has been extremely generous in you know, the 400 free places at the launch. Many people who want can have a free copy of the overview. It must be costing them quite a lot of money, actually. But um, at the moment, so far, so good. Um, I think I, I've got the microphone now. Um, yeah, um, I think, you know, I've, I've been involved in the survival movement for well over 25 years. And all of, all of, for all of those years, people have been saying to me, and I've said to myself, I don't have this diagnosis. I've got post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. <laughs> and loads of us have been saying that. And I think this reson resonates with a lot of people. But one thing that, ha that was talked a lot about over the years is the power imbalance between professionals and survivors. Mm. And um, it's, that has become, just lately I've become especially aware of that because I, I was involved with some people who were writing um, a load of stuff for BAME, um, appropriate services, and I'm becoming increasingly aware of the importance of class and the yeah, class, yeah. class yeah, disparity yeah. between professionals and survivors. Um, and that's especially so now that a lot of working class people can't get grants to go to university or whatever. Um, and I, 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 you know, really feel that I was on, I've, I've actually read the Power Threat Meaning Framework, mm. and I really feel that um, there, has, there is not enough understanding of the psychological impact of the cultural, um, of the culture of class in Britain. And I have to say, especially in England, more so than in Scotland, and I'm not just talking about, you know, do you put the milk into the tea first or, you know, after. I'm talking about the whole idea. And we had it with, we've had the chaffs, all of this stuff. People going into a therapeutic setting, if they're working class, 
uh, working classness actually in this country can bring about a, sense, a profound sense of inferiority. And a lot of people, um, so people sometimes um, might react with, 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 I'm not talking about what you are talking about earlier, I'm talking about something totally different. People might react with hostility towards professionals because they feel um, that sense of, um, here's a middle-class person, I'm not talking, yeah, yeah. this is not about you or anything. I, I'm a middle-class person and I'm a working-class person and they're not really understanding yeah. my class, my, the culture of class. And I think people in Britain are not really willing to admit that a lot of working-class people do have terrible feelings of inferiority because of the class culture in this country, and I'm going to say it again, I'm, I'm afraid it's more so in England than in Scotland, but we still got, we still the case in Scotland. But anyway, I, I would like you to think about including uh, an awareness that, um, that Western culture is it's not just Western culture, it's middle class Western culture, mm. it's working class Western culture. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, no, so sure. anyway, so that's what I want to say. Thanks. Thank you. I'll comment on that. This may be the last time question. I don't know the last question we have time for. I think there's a very, very relevant points and you may not want to read the whole damn thing. But if you look at chapter four, the main document, you'll see we've done a very extensive analysis of the role of class in distress. And I think this is what you're saying. I do agree with you that it's a, an aspect that we tend to ignore, even though we're hyper aware of it, particularly if we live in England. And it's really, really important that it's in there. And I think there is something of that, that some people look at us as a group and say, oh, well, privileged what, middle class professionals. I, I own up to being a middle class person. And I think we need to be very honest about where we come from. So actually the social cultural capital stuff, I think is a really, it's one of the sources of power. And I didn't say this because I was racing a bit. But what I The way I usually illustrate that is to say, I am a good example of someone with a lot of social and cultural capital. I'm middle class, I'm sure you can tell as soon as I open my mouth. Um, I'm well educated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I have many advantages that other people don't. And almost inevitably that's true of us as a group of main authors, though it wasn't true of the whole project group, of course, and that's why we had other advisors as well. We didn't, I think, analyse our own positions of privilege as much as we could and should have done. And actually, we want to do that more in a revised edition. Because, and we partly didn't, because we didn't want to get into this whole tiresome, you know, oh, so your kind of psychologist fighting psychiatrists. He'd be somehow tied up with all of that. But I mean, it's this paradox, isn't it, that you're likely to have to come from come some position of privilege in order to produce a document like this. And similarly, when I was in. New Zealand, the Māori way of introducing yourself is to give you a very complete picture of my family, my background, my tribe, my river, my mountain. And I started by saying um, two of my great-grandparents were missionaries. You know, they spent their lives in what was then called the Gold Coast and what was then called Ceylon. And we all have a relationship to colonialism. It's really, really important to acknowledge this stuff. But I mean, I hope you will find that if you ever do read the framework, that it's in there. Yeah. And of course, that doesn't mean to say we've got it right yet. It's a, an evolving document. Just a very quick one. Um, I heard another talk where you said um, the PTM can use a lot of psychological theories, but the biomedical one is maybe the main one that it would move away from. And you hinted how like a lot of psychological therapies can kind of individualize distress and I'm just curious you know if someone chooses to make meaning of their distress in that way even if it's not scientifically valid 
I may be missing a trick here, but is it still, I don't know if the PTM rules that out entirely, the diagnostic if someone says I choose to identify with schizophrenia or I choose to believe I've, I've been okay. inhabited by an evil spirit. Is, is that about power as well or? Okay, that's a good question. I mean, I often get asked this a clinician and as a clinician for many years, I've also said, People can describe their problems how they like, but I would, as a clinician, see it as my duty to have that conversation with them. So you see yourself having bipolar disorder. How do you understand that? Who told you that? Does that make sense to you? Are you aware there are other ways of seeing it? Should we continue to talk about this? So what I, th in, the, in a way, we're taking a parallel attitude in the framework, which is people absolutely have a right to choose their own understandings, including the most narrow medical ones, if they want. But the other side of the coin of that is should we as professionals from a professional ethical or scientific view be offering or indeed imposing these you know we don't any longer tell people they're suffering from wandering wounds going around their body like victorian women were told or they've got an excess of black bile you know science has moved on as professionals i have this old-fashioned view we shouldn't tell people lies i know it's Highly controversial, but what people want to make of that is absolutely up to them, absolutely up to them. But at the moment, they are not offered those choices or that information. That looks like that's it. Is that right? right yeah, that's all we've got time for. Let's give Lucy a big hand for that awesome movement. Hey, guys. Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures, and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.